Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In early childhood, writer Nicole Chung heard the story of her adoption as a comforting prepackaged myth. She believed that her Korean birth parents had made the ultimate sacrifice in the hopes of giving her a better life. That forever feeling slightly out of place was simply her fate as a transracial adoptee. But as she grew up, she wondered if the story she'd been told was the whole truth. In her book, All You Can Ever Know, she asks, what does it mean to lose your roots within your culture, within your family, and what happens when you find them? Today, Nicole Chung joins us to talk about her book and about several recent topics covered in her I Have Notes newsletter from The Atlantic, including writing about trauma and uh, grief. And Nicole Chung, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so I want to uh, begin talking about the, the book. Um, this is out, I think, what, 2018 or so. Um, but, of course, we have not talked about it on this program, so a, a pleasure to do that uh, before we go into some other topics. So uh, tell me first about this, um, th- this myth, this, this, this uh, tale, this uh, understanding that your parents uh, gave you that um, this is a miracle. You were a miracle to them and that the three of you uh, were meant to be together. They, they saw this in you know, religious terms, a miracle. Yes, um, so my adoption took place in the early 1980s, and I should note, unlike a lot of Korean adoptees in this country, my adoption is actually a domestic adoption uh, from state care. So my birth parents were Korean immigrants uh, to America, and they had moved here shortly before my birth. So I'm the first person in that family born on U.S. soil, and that's why my adoption, all of it took place here and was finalized here um, in the States. And so to my parents, um, it, it always was presented, you know, to me by them as in sort of these um, these mythical and also like religious terms, right, where they, like many families, had wanted to have a child for so long uh, and found that they were unable to and so began looking into adoption. And they heard about me and the fact that my birth parents were considering adoption for me, um, you know, through a series of chance connections, like friends of friends who'd heard something. It was very like word of mouth. <laughs> this is also like before the internet. So I think to them, it just felt like too great a number of coincidences or like unusual circumstances for it not to be somehow ordained. And they always really believed that them finding out about me and me joining our family was, you know, God's will. Um, but that wasn't really like the mythical part that I was sort of tackling in the book. I think like the bigger story was was that um, we knew so little about my birth family. Like it was in the era of closed adoptions. So there was no contact between our families. I didn't even know their names. They didn't know my name. You know, there was really nothing. And so um, every question I had, I would kind of come up against this just wall that was created by the fact that it was a closed adoption. And the title of the book is actually because uh, my parents, my adoptive parents used to tell me, you know, this might be all we can ever know. We knew they were recent immigrants. You know, we knew I was probably not their only child. Um, we knew a, a very little bit about my birth history and that I was born, like, severely prematurely. Um, but there was just so much that we didn't know. And the adoption was always presented to me as, like, their sacrifice, uh, something they did so that I would have a better life. Um, it was kind of a simple story and attractive in its way, and I think it brought me a lot of comfort as a child. But as I got older, you know, and also just learned a little bit more about adoption, um, I, I began to wonder, you know, was this the whole story? Um, about what time did you, about what age were you when you began to, to wonder? 
Oh, um, it started, I mean, off and on my whole life, right? From the time I was verbal, uh, I used to ask my mother, you know, like, why did they give me up? What happened? You know, do, do we know? So that curiosity for sure was always there. Um, I think that, you know, I didn't really have the language, the vocabulary as a young child, um, you know, to, to really fully express that curiosity and the feelings of, of loss um, that I had. And I think there was also so little to find out. You know, I had no idea how to go about a search even. And I didn't start researching that process until I was in, like, my mid-20s. Um, I was pregnant with my first child, and uh, I remember being at my first prenatal appointment and getting all of these questions from the midwife about, you know, birth history. What was my mother's pregnancy like? And, of course, she didn't know I was adopted, and she meant, like, what was your birth mother's pregnancy like? And it occurred to me, I didn't even know why she'd gone into labor so early. You know, I was like, what if this happens to me? What if there are just other medical conditions I should be aware of? And so there was one component of the search that it began to feel urgent because I suddenly felt in need of this information, this, this social and medical history. But there was another component, too, a really powerful um, emotional and, like, cultural one where I was going to become a mother, a parent, and I felt someday my child might have questions just like I had about our family history and I didn't know what I would share with them, you know. Um, I think there was something a fellow adoptee said to me around that time when I mentioned I'm thinking about searching. It's partly because I'm expecting a child. And what she said to me was sometimes we can do things for our children we can't do for ourselves. Um, and that stayed with me all these years. You know, I think what finally pushed me to search was this feeling that, I wasn't just searching for myself anymore, you know, I was searching in a way for both of us, for any children I would have, and to try to sort of recover some family history, some legacy for us. So this is a closed adoption, uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not easy, right, to, 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 right. to search and to find your, your birth parents. Uh, how did you go about that? So I was adopted in Washington State, and at the time I was adopted, um, and at the time I decided to search, rather, I should say, um, my adoption records were closed to me. However, an uninvolved, like, quote-unquote, confidential, like, third party could request them on my behalf for a fee um, and also reach out to my birth family and ask them, you know, are you interested in being in contact? And if so, like, facilitate that exchange of contact information. So it was quite a like lengthy bureaucratic process. And I began it early in pregnancy. Like, And I, I naively thought, I will search for them. I will find them. They will say yes or no to contact. And like whatever is going to happen will happen well before this baby is born. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, I didn't foresee just how long the process would really take, how long it would take my um, intermediary to, to petition the court to get my information, you know, to relay it to me, to reach out to my birth family. So uh, long story short, I mean, I, I actually began, I, I was in contact with them, like, right before giving birth. Like, and after the first time I heard from one of my birth family members was, like, the day I went into labor. So these two things were happening simultaneously when I had planned to sort of um, search, have whatever kind of reconnection was possible, you know, if they consented, and then <laughs> still have time to prepare for the birth. But instead, the two things happened kind of at the same time. Um, but because of that intermediary process, 
I was not the one directly reaching out to my birth family, and I did not learn, like, their names or addresses or anything really about them that I hadn't known before until they had, like, spoken with my intermediary and approved that contact in writing. That's amazing, the timing there. That's uh, You're giving birth yeah. and, and you're searching for your, your birth parents. Um so you're stranger birth, than fiction. <laughs> that's that's very true. Uh, so your, your birth parents uh, must have given permission, right, for for contact. Yes, um, when they heard from the intermediary, intermediary, they they did both consent um, to contact and just to the exchange of information, like the medical and social history that I was interested in. Oh, just for that that information. But you you must have wanted more, I, I imagine, right? Yeah, so I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. They they yeah. did approve. Uh, so they filled out like a medical and social history that I requested. And uh, in their own different ways, they did want to be in contact. You know, they both uh, expressed interest in wanting to speak with me or write to me. Um, the person in my birth family that I've developed the closest relationship with is actually my sister, um, mm-hmm. who like lives in the Portland area. So um, she wrote to me after after learning about me. Actually, my my birth parents um, had told her that I died at birth, and so because they did not know how to explain the adoption to her, and so when she, when she heard that I was alive, you can imagine it was it was quite a shock. And so we began emailing, writing letters, sometimes having calls, and then met in person um, about a year after first connecting. And it's been just an incredibly fulfilling um, and nourishing relationship that I'm so grateful for. And of course, the circumstances uh, under which your your birth parents uh, you know, gave you up for adoption they're pretty complicated, right? Um, mm-hmm, and yeah. what, what was it like yeah, learning learning those case. circumstances? Yeah, so um, I, I don't want to give like everything away, but I will say like as I kind of suspected by the time I started to search, um, my adoption, like every adoption, is is much more complicated than I initially thought. Um, and I completely understand why my adoptive parents gave me that sort of founding origin story. Um, birth parents were here and they were immigrants and felt this was the best thing for you. This was their only choice. You know, they wanted you to have a better life. It, it was obviously meant to kind of soften the blow and make me not feel as though I had been abandoned. But um, instead, you know, this was obviously like a decision they made selflessly. Um and there's elements of truth in that, but there's also like a great deal more that's complicated. You know, there's a lot of trauma in my birth family. Um, and, you know, perhaps I should have realized before, like to decide to place a child for adoption, you know, they must have been um, facing some pretty dire circumstances, um, if, you know, and especially since they already had children at home. And, so it was. It was difficult to learn some of that information, but I'm still really grateful to have, you know, a fuller picture of the truth. And at the same time, I think this is true in so many families, when, especially when you're trying to recover lost history and, and like, those stories that people don't talk about. Um, there are things that we'll never really know. There's, there's truths I'll never really understand fully. Um, but I am really grateful to have a, a more complete picture, you know, not just for myself, but like for my kids. Um, and obviously so thankful to have found my sister and developed a really close relationship with her. I want to go back to uh, your, your growing up years. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. 
you're you're an adoptee, right? And and beyond that, a transracial mm-hmm. adoptee. Um, so mm-hmm. so with either of those or both of those together, a certain point, I assume you you notice, well, things in my family aren't quite the way they are in my friends' families. Yes, and I grew up in um, a fairly like a very white. Uh, neighborhood and community. Um, I was the only Korean I knew until I left home for college. Um, and my entire adoptive family is white. So yes, I not I didn't really see people who looked like me and noticed that and asked about it from a super young age. That said, I don't think it was something that troubled me a great deal uh, until I went to school. And actually, a few years into elementary school, when you know I started encountering like racism and bullying at school, um, I went to a school that was pretty much entirely white as well. Um, and up until then, I was sort of in this little safe haven of my family bubble, right? Like uh, my, and I wasn't encountering racism at home, uh, obviously, but like at school, you know, it was a different story. And I realized other people certainly notice and they certainly do care, you know, that I'm different from other people that they see. Um, There was, I think, just a lot of, I wasn't wasn't really raised to think that that would be an issue because my adoptive parents were were counseled by, by like, quote-unquote experts when they adopted me, you know, the adoption attorney and the judge who finalized my adoption and their adoption agency. Um, they all basically said, her race won't matter, you know, just assimilate her and everything will be fine. And it didn't matter to my parents, naturally. It didn't affect how much they loved me, but it did matter as soon as I stepped out into the world. Um, and so, yeah, I would say school age, like, you know, early elementary school is when I really began to notice the differences. How did your parents handle that? Did you come home and talk about it? You know, I mean, my memory is honestly a little bit fuzzy. I think I, I mean, I would have said, yeah, I'm the only, I'm the only one like me in my class. I never told them about the bullying when it was happening. Like kids would do that thing where they would pull their eyes back and make them look squinty and like sort of chant racist songs at me. Or I, I mean, I started hearing actual slurs from a really young age. And I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, I understood I understood I was being mocked. I understood I was being targeted. And I understood it was because of my race, but I did not have the language to really talk about that. Um, I had not ever been, and we didn't really talk about race when I was growing up, either in my family or in my school. And if we did talk about racism, it was always presented as this thing that everyone had moved past. Like it was part of history and now things are so much better. We never really moved beyond those sort of superficial talking points. And so I'd never been led to believe I would encounter racism, especially in school in a place my parents thought was safe for me, where I'd be accepted. I just did not know how at seven and eight years old to go home and tell them, listen, I think maybe you're wrong about my race not mattering. It seems to matter a great deal at school. Um, I couldn't, I didn't have the vocabulary for that. I was a pretty verbal kid, but I I didn't know how to share that with them, and I felt embarrassed, and I just wanted it to go away. Um, so and it went on for years without me really telling anyone. Um, it, it was it was really it was difficult. I will say, as I got older, like definitely starting as a teen, and and much more so after I became an adult. I did have discussions within my adoptive family about some of the things I experienced, you know, as a kid growing up in our very white community in Oregon. But um, 
I kind of had to grow up and leave home and, and process a lot of it on my own before I could share it with them or with anyone. I just didn't know how to talk about it when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to have you talk a little bit about identity. Identity is complicated, right, for each of us, and each of us is Mm -hmm. not just one thing. Each of us is a multitude of things, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But how did you you work through that uh, or continue to work through that for for yourself with these, you know, added layers of adoption? So you have to work a little harder to find that part of you. Sure. I mean, this is one reason why literature for young people is so important. Like, when I was growing up, there weren't as many stories um, about, like, Asian American youth. Um, I don't recall very many adoption stories beyond, I'm trying to think, like, there were, your, you had, your, like, your Anne of Green Gables, you had, like, A Little Princess and, and books like that, but, you know, these were all, all white people. Um, and, like, they were living in my past, right? I, I didn't get to read any sort of modern-day adoptee stories, uh, or any transracial adoptee stories, but even with sort of that dearth of representation, you know, reading and writing also were were both were always both very important things for me in terms of really just thinking about my questions about myself, yes, but like also about my community and my family and like the world in general. There was so much I didn't know. And reading and writing were both ways that I tried to to get at that and to ask those questions, even though I might not find answers. You know, it was just I will say like I don't think empowering is the wrong word. Actually, I think I think it's the right word. I found I found a great deal of empowerment and encouragement in that. And um, you know, as a writer, writing has always been one way that I think about not just who I am, but who I am in the context of my communities. Um, so, you know, those are like two things for sure that have helped. And then part of it, I sort of alluded to this earlier, part of it is just growing up, that process we all go through no matter what our background, and many of us grow up and also leave home. And I think in my case, there were questions that I couldn't ask when I was still living at home, living in this very um, sort of insular community and living under my parents' roof. Like, I knew they loved me and I loved them, and that actually made it harder sometimes to have these conversations. I would sometimes feel like I was betraying them if I admitted to curiosity about my birth family or feeling out of place as a Korean adoptee. Um, It was just hard to do that, and it wasn't until I kind of grew up and stepped away in that natural growing up process, you know, that... um, I found I had a little more space to consider those questions and sort of reconsider my identity as an adoptee. Yeah, I, I'm picturing you as a, as a girl. That's very sweet that it, it was hard for you to bring this up because you loved your parents so much. Um, and I guess you felt it'd be hard for them, right? That's maybe the reason. I, I did. You know, I it's hard to say because as a child, you don't, again, I don't think I necessarily had, I wasn't going through this super complicated cognitive process of like consciously thinking, you know, either they can't handle this or I knew they loved me and that wasn't going to change no matter what I said. Um, I knew that was not going to change, but there was a sense of like, we're in this together. Right. And I, I had grown up hearing lots of questions about my adoption from a very young age. When you are not the same race as your parents, you get those questions very, very young. Or they'd ask my parents, but like right in front of me, like, where did you get her? And so I knew there was this curiosity. And I had always felt as though, I don't know, like maybe my family needed protection or like defending in some way. 
it's not that my adoptive parents like told me that, you know, they weren't, they weren't telling me how to feel or what to think about it, but it just, I knew, I knew how much our family meant to them. I knew how much they'd wanted to become parents and I knew how much they loved me. And I don't know. I, I also felt that sometimes the quickest way to shut down invasive questions was just to like minimize adoption and sort of say, yeah, of course, like it's just another way of joining a family. Everything's great. I don't have more complicated feelings about it, but you know, of course I did. Mm. Uh, just one more thing, and then we'll take a break and uh, move on to some other things. But um, people are, who aren't part of adoptive uh, families, I guess sometimes feel clumsy. Uh, what terms do we use? Uh, you know, you, you're, you're asked, uh, who are your real parents, you know, quote, unquote. Uh, and, uh, you know, oh, sure. we, we use terms like, you know, birth parents, adoptive parents. It could be a little awkward. What what, what, what mm-hmm. do you say? What's, what advice do you give? I mean, I don't think that there's necessarily consensus in the adoption or even the adoptee community. Um, but I, when I'm speaking like, like I'm speaking with you, I'll use terms like birth parents and adoptive parents just to be clear so people know who I'm talking about. Um, you know, in day-to-day life, of course, I wasn't calling my mother, like, adoptive mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's not, like, how I necessarily think of her first in my brain. But when speaking with others about her, like, that's, I've kind of trained myself to be clear so that people know which, like, which par- set of parents I'm talking about. Um, it doesn't mean that's, like, what our relationship is. Uh, but I don't know. Like, I think sometimes I will kind of defer to the terminology that other people, um, you know, want to use, adoptees in particular, um, and I don't like the term real, like real family or real parents. I think a lot of people in the adoption community um, don't like that because from my perspective as an adoptee, you know, it's not as though um, like basically both families are real and that they're both real sets of people. They're, everyone here is a real human. <laughs> and so I, I have problems with the term real. I also feel there's sometimes pressure on adoptees to choose or like declare our loyalty or like say who we love the most. You know, I've had people follow up with, oh, but like your adoptive parents, you think of them as your real parents, right? And like, I I do, but it's not that, it doesn't make my birth parents less real as people or parents. It's just a completely different relationship um, that I have with them. And so, yeah, I, um, I would generally avoid that term for sure, just because I feel it creates a lot of pressure and on on people to like think of one family or the other as legitimate or real when again everyone's a real person involved we're talking with the writer nicole chung um and you can find her at nicolechung.net by the way um uh, she writes for several publications including the atlantic where she has the i have notes newsletter we'll talk uh, after break about uh, several topics covered in recent uh, newsletters. Very interesting um, place to go. By the way, I think you have to be a subscriber to The Atlantic to, to get I Have Notes, but uh, well worth subscribing to. Um, the book is All You Can Ever Know. That's out and available, and Nicole Chung uh, has another book coming out. We'll, we'll reference that as we go along. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Nicole Chung. Uh, she is author of the book "All You Can Ever Know." Uh, she uh, will be out soon with another book, a second book. She writes the "I Have Notes" newsletter from the Atlantic Magazine, um, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the topics uh, covered uh, on in recent newsletters. Uh, now, 
Uh, you can find Nicole Chung at NicoleChung.net, by the way. So, Nicole Chung, um, I was struck by a recent newsletter, which is uh, titled, the headline is, How Can You Write About Pain Without Retraumatizing Yourself? I think this, in fact, was a uh, question or a statement you got from from somebody you were interacting with, and um, mm-hmm. uh, had had to do with I think uh, you know uh, working on your second book. Yes, I mean, so uh, I occasionally will teach uh, nonfiction and memoir classes, and uh, in one of the more recent classes I taught, um, a particular student asked me basically, "How do you write about something painful that happened to you without?" re-traumatizing yourself um, throughout that experience. And it was just such an interesting question to me, in part because, well, for a few reasons. One, nearly everybody in the class was writing about something really difficult. And I don't know if it's partly the pandemic and the just the enormous amount of collective and individual grief that people are shouldering. Um, the way that sometimes t- times of upheaval can make us reflective, you know, can make us go back and look at our lives and things that have happened to us especially painful things, and try to make sense of them. But in any case, many, many people in the class were writing about, like, um, about grief, about trauma, about loss or hardship in some way, um, writing beautiful pieces. I mean, it was a real gift to get to talk with those students. But I just, and, and I was in the midst of w- working on my second book, which is very much about, about grief um, and losses that I've experienced in recent years. So I, I felt... I felt like a little strange answering their question, to be honest, because um, what I want to tell them and what I would tell others trying to do this is, like, please take care of yourselves and, you know, be patient and gentle with yourself as much as possible and know that you have time to do this. If, and if something hurts too much, it's, it's all right to not revisit it in this exact moment. It's okay not to write about it in this exact moment. It doesn't mean that you'll never write about it. It doesn't mean it's not important. Um, And at the same time as I say that, like, I was on a book deadline, and there were days when I really felt as though it was painful. It was painful to write this, and I questioned if I was ready, and I did it anyway, because that's what it means to be a writer on a deadline. Um, So, you know, the advice I try to give students and other writers who do have a little bit more time maybe than I had um, is just to kind of, first of all, ask yourself the question, like, are you really ready to write this, um, you know, and can you give yourself more time? Like, can you build more time into that process? And, like, within that process, what are some ways that you can take breaks if you need to, rest if you need to, find routines that that work and that help nourish and sustain your writing um, so that it's not just a slog, so that when things do come up that maybe are traumatizing or triggering, you have ways of coping and giving yourself space and time and finding the support you need um, to work through it. So, yeah, that, that's really where that piece came from, is thinking about, while there are no hard and fast answers, like what are some things, some strategies that have worked for me lately? Um, and, and, like, in what ways can you incorporate um, more care for yourself into a writing process? You, you, this struck me, you write that uh, writing is not therapy. You know, therapy is separate, right? Uh, do that, right, if that, that's helpful for you. So what does writing uh, do, do you think? I mean, writing has always been how I personally ask myself questions, you know, reconsider things that I thought were settled matters 
Um, and yeah, try to find some kind of way forward. Not necessarily a silver lining, because there isn't always a silver lining. But really, it is like, how do we get forward? How do we move forward? Um, and I think too, writing is for me is very much about reaching out uh, to others who are like going through similar things. Um, I try to write keeping readers in mind in the hope that maybe somebody will read what I write and feel less alone in their grief or in the case of my first book, like their adoptee experience or their adoption experience. Um, so it is also like a means of connection and community doesn't take away trauma, you know, but I find almost everything is harder to face, including grief and trauma when you don't have community. Um, so that, that's kind of another thing that I think both reading and writing have provided me, you know, through periods of loss is just, um, opportunities to hear from and connect with others kind of going through similar things. But, but it's true. I don't think of writing as therapy, at least not, not the way that I'm doing it for, for like public consumption. Um, there's certainly writing that can be very therapeutic. Like I've, I'm a lifelong journaler. I've kept a journal since I was like six years old. Um, you know, with varying degrees of intensity over the years, but it's always been a really helpful place for me to process and it is therapeutic. But when I, when I write, uh, for pub for the public when I write something that will be shared. Um, I I'm not thinking of that as, as primarily therapeutic writing. It's And it's not meant to be this great catharsis for me or how I'm going to heal. Ultimately, writing that I publish is as much or more for the reader as it is for me. Um, you know, I have to kind of keep them in mind and think about, like, what is someone else who's not me, who doesn't have this experience, exact experience, what can they hold on to? What can they take away? Why am I asking them to walk with me for a little while through this? Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I mean by, meant by saying, like, for me, this type of writing, public writing, is not meant to be therapy. Mm. This uh, line also struck me from this piece. Um, you say, I tried to lean into the dark, unexpected humor of grief when I found it. And I, yeah. I, I think we think <laughs> of grief, and there's no humor there. Uh, but you're saying there, there, there can be. At least that was my experience. I don't want to say for everybody else, um, but my first experience with grief was on my father. And just to be clear, like for your listeners, my adoptive father, um, who passed away in 2018, actually not long before All You Can Ever Know was published. Um, and like, this is just an example. And I want to apologize in advance if this like offends anybody, but like, uh, I, my, I grew up in a Catholic family. My mother and father were uh, converted to Orthodoxy, Orthodox Christianity. All that to say, we have open casket, <laughs> like funerals. And so like, I grew up going to these. It's very common in my, like, in my adoptive family culture. So we're all standing around just before my father's memorial service. And like someone, one of my mother's friends walks up and she's like, man, they did such a good job on him. Um, and my mother, without missing a beat, says, yeah, they really did. Like, And someone else chimed in, like, we should all look so good like when we enter the kingdom. And I, I have to say, like, it was so hard not to crack up in that <laughs> moment. Um, I feel there's a part of every like Catholic, maybe Orthodox funeral, too, where someone feels the need to compliment the, the body of the deceased and like what a good job the um the funeral home did in 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 presenting them and i i apologize this is dark but this is the, that's an example of the type of humor right that i found in grief and there were so many other strange moments like that like every time i would get mad at my dad after he died you know because like he left us in this mess or he wasn't here and we were going through a crisis or 
my mother and I would like kind of joke about him and like say things like, well, maybe he wouldn't have been much help anyway. And it was from a place of deep love and like missing him and wanting him to be there with us. And so to us, it was funny. I, I'm not sure if this is going to translate for anybody else, but, but my mother had a very dark sense of humor. <laughs> and I, uh, so I, I don't know, I, I just think of moments like that. And sometimes those moments were, were times when I felt like the most, I don't know, like, like we were really together in our grief. I felt like great comfort um, in sharing those moments like with her. Um, so I'm not sure kind of explaining this very well, mm-hmm. but I think there can be like a great deal of humor in grief um, and in like remembering those we've lost. And sometimes, sometimes it's a coping mechanism, like it's whistling in the dark, but, mm-hmm. but other times I think it, it's an opportunity for real connection and for like missing and also honoring that person as they were. Um, I feel like my dad would have appreciated that because he also had a, a pretty wacky sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, that, that does definitely resonate. Uh, you have another piece, um, uh, newsletter, Tell Me a Story About Her is, is the title. That that comes <laughs> from, uh, you, you say that that's been very um, helpful to you as you've been grieving, and you suggest this. That's a, that's a great right. way for someone to approach someone who's grieving. Tell me a story about that person. Yeah, so um, I I realized that there was my mother. My mother passed away during the pandemic, and um, not it was about two years after my father died. And it was that period of the pandemic where people were by and large not traveling. Um, and like I had to live stream her funeral. It was a terrible time, and nobody could be with me. Like I, um, my family was with me, like my household, but like my friends couldn't be with me. There wasn't really a way to like mourn together. Um, and so every, like, conversation or moment of community or, like, fellowship that I had with anybody after she died was, like, over the phone or, or something like that. So I had a lot of conversations instead of that, that way of grieving where you can just kind of sit quietly and, like, hold someone's hand and be with them, uh, you know, bring them a meal, bring them flowers, and just sit with them and maybe not say a lot. Like, that wasn't really so available to me because um, the only way people could make their presence felt was, like, calls. And, like, um, so I realized, like, at some point I wanted to talk to people about her and about this loss but it felt so huge. Like, I didn't really know how, to, like, I couldn't find a way in into that um, because a lot of people hadn't known her, of course, the way I had. And I felt like, oh, I'll have to explain so much to be able to, like, make her real, like, conjure her up for them. Um, and finally, I realized, like, the clearest and, like, most low pressure and loving way, really, um, of entering that space where I could talk about her with others was, like, when someone said, if you want to, you know, will you tell me a story about her? And it, it was perfect. It sort of gave me the opportunity, too, to say, you know, no, I can't talk about it right now. But but often, I mean, I did want to talk about it. And I didn't have to conjure her fully as she was and explain everything about her history. They said a story, like one story. And I was like, okay, like I can do that one singular story. What's an important story or a funny story or a favorite story that I can tell about her? And this person, this listener, they will get what they get. They may not understand all of it, but they'll have, like, this little snapshot of her, and I'll have gotten to share her with somebody. Um, So that was, like, really meaningful to me. And in the context of that newsletter, too, it's something that I've – it's just something that I've kept in mind. Sometimes 
writing about grief is hard and I tell myself, okay, like for this scene, for this chapter, we're just telling a story. We're telling a story about mom or we're telling a story about dad. And like, this is how, what are the words you need to kind of make this story come to life for someone? Um, And it feels less daunting, you know, than thinking about, I have to tell you everything about who they were because that's impossible. That's an impossible task. This could also be a way, uh, you know, a way in. I, I think a lot of us are feel very awkward we're approaching somebody who's grieving, right? We don't know what to say. And so yeah. sometimes we just avoid, and then that that can compound, uh, you know, feelings, and people feel abandoned at that point. Mm-hmm. I think it's true, yeah. I mean, and I've experienced this too. I know so many people going through grief, and even though I've been through it myself, it's not like I always know the right thing to say. Um, but I, I do sort of know for me, like, what has been helpful and not helpful. And... Um, you know, there's so much too that you can sort of do beyond words, but I like, I like tell me a story about, about them. Like if you can, um, and I love to hear those stories that other people share about their loved ones, like short, long, like funny, poignant. I, I really enjoy hearing those. And so, yeah. Also when somebody asks, and I said this in the newsletter, it's like, then you know as the grieving person, you're not going to burden them. I think sometimes grieving people feel or are made to feel as though, oh, the grief, the loss, this person that you lost, that's all you're talking about. And it can feel that way because that's often all you can think about in grief. But when someone specifically reaches out and asks you, you know, will you tell me a story about them? You know, if you answer and give them that story, it's in no way a burden that they want to hear it. And, and that makes a huge difference too, just knowing that someone is really asking because they care. Um, you know, they're not going anywhere. They're ready to listen if you want to talk. You have another newsletter. Uh, it's titled on grief and reentry. Um, this is very mm-hmm. poignant. Uh, you know, a lot of people have, have lost loved ones during the pandemic and during, during the height of the pandemic when we're, you know, locked down and can't even attend the funeral, that sort of thing. And you say, I'm learning how hard it is to imagine or believe in any version of quote unquote normal when you're, when you're grieving. Uh, tell me about this. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and part of this too, I think just was the fact that my, um, my mother died during the pandemic at this time that, I mean, in a way it was, everyone sort of understood how I felt because everybody was mourning something or someone, um, I found it to be, I mean, it, of course, I wasn't happy that people were also going through it, but no one had to dig very deep to like figure out how I felt. And at the same time, it was this very isolating experience. And I remember thinking like, um, particularly um, as, as, you know, things started opening up, um, you know, we're still in a pandemic, but things have opened up a great deal and people were moving out into the world. And I, everyone was talking about this, like, uh, resumption of normal life that I just did not feel because I was grieving. Like, for me, I couldn't even picture, I couldn't picture the world before. I was still learning how to, like, live in the world after my loss. Um, and so, like, for me, there really was no no sense of normal. Um, and in a way, actually, after some time, I realized, well, like, that's, that's maybe okay. I'm, I'm not trying to get back to where I was and I'm not trying to reach some point where everything is fine because everything's not fine. <laughs> but, um, yeah, once I took that pressure off of myself, actually, like I, I was no longer expecting normal in any way, shape or form. Um, 
it, it helped me kind of really acknowledge my grief and be okay with living in it for, you know, as long as I will live in it. Um, and I still feel as though I'm, I wouldn't even call it a new normal yet. It's just every day is different and I'm still, I'm still figuring out how to exist um, in this world, like without my mother, without my parents. And it has helped me personally to take that pressure of normal off um, and just realize that, you know, I'm doing the best I can and nothing is actually normal. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably a good way to to think about it. Let's take another break. We'll come back with a uh, brief final segment with Nicole Chung. Uh, she's a writer, author of All You Can Ever Know. She also writes the I Have Notes newsletter from The Atlantic. That's what we've been talking about the last uh, segment here. We'll talk about an, uh, another couple of newsletters, uh, topics in those newsletters following a break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Nicole Chung. You can find her at NicoleChung.net, by the way. Uh, her book is All You Can Ever Know. That's out and available, and uh, she'll have another book coming out soon. Uh, She writes the I Have Notes newsletter from the Atlantic magazine. Uh, So, Nicole Chung, I want to definitely talk about this. We only have about five minutes left here, but um, this this struck me. Uh, The title is striking, Writing While Asian (laughs) and the Burden of Education. Tell me the experience you had. You opened this with an experience you had on uh, on on a panel. Yes. Um, so I, I was on a panel with several authors many years ago, um, several different writers, and most most of the rest of the panel uh, were white authors. And it was also just a very like white room. Most of the audience members too. And um, you know, so I noticed that um, the the panel moderator asked me a lot of questions that were specifically about like race in America and my own experiences with racism and, and how did I think people could be more sensitive and less racist and all of the other people on the panel, um, all white authors, they got different sorts of questions. They got questions about their writing. They got questions about their craft and their process and how they came up with ideas uh, and what it was like writing, you know, writing stories. And so, you know, I was struck by that. It, I, and it, it, everyone was like perfectly uh, professional. You know, everyone was, was perfectly kind, but I still left feeling as though, oh, like, I, was I invited to be on this panel like, to be Asian? <laughs> like, was it sort of a form of, of tokenism? Probably unintentional. Um, but I remember just being kind of, surprised by it uh, because it was really the first time it had happened, um, especially like in front of an audience. And I'm, I'm used to talking about, about race and transracial adoption and my own experiences with it, but just couldn't help but be struck by the fact that that was the only thing I was asked about on this panel. Mm. By the way, when you talk with, uh, you, you write, when you, when you talk with other Asian women writers, uh, um, I guess at least one of them or some of them have stories about being mistaken for each other. Um, which is, yeah, which is, I, which is not I don't thing. know an Asian woman writer yeah. who hasn't been mistaken R- really? for another Asian woman wow. writer at an event. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's something we sort of joke about, but mm. it's also, um, I mean, the joking is, is sort of like a coping mechanism yeah. as well. Yeah, uh, It's like you have to laugh about it. Yeah. Uh, so I want to have two minutes left. I want to end with this question. What what do you what do you want your writing to do? What what do you think uh, literature can do? 
Yeah, so that's a great, hard question. <laughs> um, there's like no limit in a way to what literature can do. There, there, I mean, it can be, it can be instructive, although in that piece you just referenced, what I was kind of bristling at is this idea that writers of color and other marginalized writers should be expected in some way to educate, that that's where the value of our writing is, that we can't just tell a story. There has to be some lesson uh, to take away. Um, but, but writing can be instructive. It can also be like, as I mentioned before, I find it to be a really powerful means of connection. Um, it means a great deal when I hear from readers and they say, like, reading your book or reading that something you wrote, this expressed what I feel. Like, we don't have the same life. We don't have the same experiences. But, you know, you made, you made me feel less alone. I have experienced that so many times, reading the work of other writers. Um, and there is always, like, a great deal to learn. So, you know, I, I really feel as a writer it's not my job to, um, to be prescriptive or to tell people this is what you have to take from my work. I think that the relationship a reader has with books they read, with other things they read, I think that's a sacred and very individual relationship. And so it's not my place as a writer, even as the person who wrote something that you read, to tell you what it has to mean to you. Um, there's this point in, in the life of everything you write as a, as a writer, when you let go of it, it goes out into the world and it takes on a life of its own. Like readers will have their own relationship to it and that is the way it is supposed to work. So I, I really have no interest in trying to dictate what that is or how other people must feel or what they must take away. Um, that said, I love it when, when I hear from a reader and it, I feel as though they actually do really get and understand like my experience or what I was trying to share or the point I was trying to make. Um, but yeah, I've also been like wonderfully surprised hearing from readers who've taken something away that I wouldn't necessarily have picked out, but that's what it meant to them. And I think that is still so wonderful and important. Well, we're out of uh, time. We'll leave the conversation uh, there. We've been writing, uh, we're talking with the writer Nicole Chung. You can find her at nicolechung.net. Uh, her book is available, All You Can Ever Know, and uh, you can find her at The Atlantic, where she writes the I Have Notes uh, newsletter. Nicole Chung, thank you so much. Pr appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you. And uh, we'll go out with uh, a new segment. We'll have this on Tuesdays at the end of the program. Um, it's uh, Richard Ratliff with the Citizens Academy. My daughter recently decided to take a little bicycle ride with her 14-year-old son. Two weeks later, they were off on a 3,000-mile ride across the United States. Afterward, their deepest impression was that this country is filled with a lot of really nice, good people. Not a place where they might have expected people dying in the streets, mass shootings, power-based political gridlock, and economic danger, a paralyzing medical pandemic, racial protests, a physical attack on the nation's government, communities and institutions overwhelmed with illegal immigrants and political refugees, and a smoldering standoff over what to do about unwanted pregnancies. On top of all that, we're told that our natural environment is teetering on disaster. It is this second face of America that now concerns us at Utah Public Radio. It is worrisome, for some, fearsome. But I believe we're not without hope, perhaps not yet, because the genuine goodness of our people and our fundamental institutions. So UPR is presenting a series of short segments that may help. We're calling it a Citizens Academy. 
My name is Richard Ratliff. I am your host. The series will air weekly from August through November this year, 2022, in preparation for our November elections. I am proposing a way to approach these elections that we all can adopt without demonizing or criticizing anyone else, one where we actually need each other's differences. There is no club to join, no need to change political stripes, no need for new governmental infrastructure or reorganization. We need no new political party, no new laws, no new taxes. In fact, we probably could even lower taxes for everyone and still pay our gargantuan, dangerously threatening national debt. We need no new economic theory. We need not abandon or revise our Constitution, and the curing effects can begin almost immediately. How is that? Well, we can begin with a simple observation of how society works. We also might add a new word to our political vocabulary, relationism, or more specifically, political relationism. And of course, it will require us to vote. There are five fundamental ideas to political relationism. The first is a personal observation of how society works. That is, that the defining characteristic of society is its relationships. Without relationships, there is no society. A healthy society enjoys an abundance of healthy relationships of all types. An unhealthy society suffers too many unhealthy relationships that threaten virtually every other aspect of life as we know it. Fortunately, we have a pretty good idea of how good and bad relationships work. In upcoming programs, we will discuss how healthy relationships work and how to fix unhealthy relationships even when we disagree. Right now, our society is suffering, a nation of good people, bogged down in political mire, vitriol, conflict, and a stubborn case of gridlock, all a result of bad relationships, where what divides us has confused and blurred what unites us. Perhaps if we fix the relationships, we could fix everything else. Idea number two, good relationships are better for everyone involved than bad relationships and they cost less, often a lot less. Idea number three. The main purpose of government is to create an environment where good relationships thrive. Idea number four. Good government is conducted primarily by good relationships. Idea number five. Our job as citizens is to find, elect, and support government leaders who possess outstanding relationship skills and who have robust relationship portfolios, including with those who disagree with them. These five fundamental ideas compose the essence of what I call relationism. If we can agree on these five statements, perhaps we can agree on their societal and political implications. We will discuss these ideas in weeks to come, how they apply in current political issues, and how a simple change of mind from power-based to relationship-based can change everything. I am a political relationist. You may be too. I hope so. We invite your comments and questions. Please address your emails to upraccess at gmail.com. This is Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. Thank you for listening. Till next time.